But so we'll begin in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I really loved what we called debate class. Um, and you would get your, with your team of usually two to three people on each team. And you would get with your team and you would talk about the topic that you would be either defending or opposed to. And I loved it. I loved swaying individuals, persuading them to go on our side because it was just a lot of fun. And I felt like our teams were always convincing, you know. Uh, a lot of my classmates, they always said, you probably should be a lawyer. But thank the Lord I never went down that path at all. I'm in the ministry by His grace. But, you mean a liar? Uh, uh, what? A liar? A liar? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lawyer. <laughs> Well, I'm thankful I'm not that either, hopefully, by the grace of God. So, But the past week, actually last week, uh, in, our, in our country, in the United States, we had uh, the two candidates that were up for the presidential, uh, presidential election. And I'll watch the second of the three debates, mostly on video. But both candidates had strong points and objections, of course, towards one another's policies. But most of what, but most of all, but most of all, even though it might be true, most of all, what became apparent to I think all Americans who really viewed and watched the videos uh, was that a real true leader was lacking in the arguments. It's you could almost taste like, oh, that sounds like a good policy, and then all of a sudden it would just go downhill and think, where's the leadership? But the rest. And the other person would start talking and say, oh, well, he's got leadership in that. And then all of a sudden, he'll start talking even more. And then where's the true leadership? It was just clearly lacking. Uh, there were some things that were going on as well. I mean, obviously, they were particularly rude towards one another. They cut each other off. I, I thought to myself, if this was true debate class, both of them would lose points, lots of points for interrupting all the time. And... The moderator not really having any respect or respect for what was happening. So there are a lot of things that just blew my mind about it. But I thought the clearest thing was there wasn't any true leadership, not only with the proposals, but there wasn't true leadership and charisma and character coming out from either one. And so what makes a good debater profoundly excellent is their ability, I believe, to to competently, with confidence... And with facts and research to be able to answer the questions, reveal flaws in the opposing person and their views, and appeal to the general public. But when only two out of the three things happen, you still lack a leader. And so when there isn't a real persuasion going on, you tend to leave their, your audience really behind. And you really aren't able to bring them into what you're really trying to say. You're not winsomely getting the message across. But I believe here in Acts 6, what we see is Stephen who is definitely seeking to be winsome. He's definitely someone who is appealing. He's someone who has a strong argument, who isn't insulting, who doesn't cut anybody off, who is full of humility, but still is under great opposition. And so as we read here in Acts 6 and beginning in verse 8, what we see here is Stephen being able to handle an onslaught of opposition with grace and power in his words. Words are so, so powerful, aren't they? I mean, you can really cut somebody down to the lowest level just through a few words. Or you can lift somebody to the highest height. That's what we want to do with 
our worship, right? We want to use words that convey powerfully how we feel about God in our worship. But also we want to use words that are powerful in reflecting who God is to people who don't know God. The right words, appropriate words. But we see Stephen here using words that truly reflect who God is, but we still see the opposition. Pastor Chang Kilgore, who's the pastor of Cross Point in Orlando, he says that the preaching of the gospel either softens the heart or hardens it. You get one response to the other. And I believe using winsome words could soften the heart, but also can make it hard through the power of the gospel. So as we read here in verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and, and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But, in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So who was Stephen and the opposition? Let's look at that first in verse 8 through 10. Before we learn about Stephen in this particular account, what we already know about Stephen is that he was called out from more than the 8,000 believers, members of the original church, to serve as one of the first seven lead servants. Remember Stephen and Philip? As we read here uh, in Acts 6, 3 through 5, in the same chapter, you read in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Skip to verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. That's the apostles speaking. But in verse 5, they say, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and of course, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, who's a proselyte of Antioch. So Luke, the author of Acts, he describes Stephen as a Hellenistic man, full of grace and power, who's doing great wonders and signs among the people. So we have to wonder to ourselves, only the apostles did signs and wonders, right? Right? Well, in being selected and set apart to serve tables or to... Being an administrator, it didn't mean that you had to stop preaching the word. There were some who actually possessed the ability to preach the gospel, to teach faithfully uh, the, the law of God very well. And we're winsome about it. And Stephen was one of those. But we see he was doing, in verse 8, great signs and wonders among the people. So obviously we see here that this man had a significant healing ministry to the Greek-speaking Jews. Now remember, Stephen is the only one we know to this point who's actually going to the Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking synagogues. So what we learn is in, in his gospel proclamation, by doing signs and wonders of healing, we learn that he was a gifted orator. So he's got great speaking ability. He's got a great healing ministry. He's an individual who's going outside of what Aramaic-speaking Jewish life and going to Greek-speaking synagogues. Because as you read here, those who belong to the synagogue are the freedmen. The freedmen, usually what these were, were liberated slaves, typically under Roman rule. Of the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and Asia. What we also know here about Stephen uh, is that the significance that he was an apostle doing the great signs and wonders among the people, but due to his gifting 
we learn that he had this significant healing ministry rooted in missional purpose, which is taking the gospel to the Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, here we see that opposition arose in Stephen's ministry because he provoked it above, amongst the non-believing Grecian Jews in the synagogue of the freedmen. But these two main items they had against Stephen are pretty significant. One is the interpretation of the law, and the second being that Stephen viewed the temple as useless because of Jesus' coming. So imagine you walking into a non-believing Greek-speaking company and you telling them the law is no longer useless anymore because Jesus has fulfilled everything. And the second being, this whole deal right here, this temple you spend gobs of money on to upkeep, Jesus is the fulfillment of the true temple. So your law is useless and your temple is meaningless because Jesus fulfills all of that. Now, I think if I was a non-believer, I would be pretty upset. You've offended my, my, my holy word. This is God's mind and will revealed right here in the Holy Old Testament law. And you've offended our holy place that God has divinely given to us through our line. But Stephen... Don't don't misunderstand this. Stephen is not saying your law is dumb, your temple is stupid. He's not saying that. He's saying all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, how do they respond? Let's look at verse verse 10 and 11. It says verse 10 again, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they pulled him aside and they had a private debate. They said, come on, man, you're really not serious about this. You can't be serious that Jesus, who died on the cross, whom we don't know if he really rose from the grave. It's just kind of a speculated thing. No, no, it's true. He did rise from the grave. Okay, well, we can't believe that Jesus makes this temple divinely given to us useless now. No, no, it is useless. Okay, so in verse 11, what happens? Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So now they can't win the argument privately. they got to win the argument publicly. So they start whispering in other people's ears. Hey, did you hear what he said? He said the temple's useless. He said that Jesus really fulfills all things. You know, he says this about our law. And he starts telling all these people all these different lies. And words start getting twisted. Stephen's words get get twisted. They uh, are taken out of context. They're misunderstood. Stephen is now being misunderstood even greater because these few who wanted to protect their influence with the temple and the law, honestly, and holding people under a religious thumb, they didn't like Stephen's message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the opposition arises here in his ministry because he's provoked. But these two things right here, the interpretation of the law and Christ changing the law and rendering the temple useless are pretty significant in Jewish life. But I I want to I really want to put this down not necessarily as fact, but I want to say that in Acts 21:39 we read Paul 
Saul of Tarsus, he says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, he's talking to somebody else, and Saul is converted to Christ. He's now Paul, and Paul's writing this back in, or Luke's writing this back in, uh, or forward in Acts 21. But here we see here, those from Cilicia in Asia rose up. I want to say that Saul is the one debating with Stephen here, and talking with him about what this, who this Christ is, and why our law and temple are now useless. Because as we read in Acts 8 later, we see at the, by the hands of Saul, Stephen being stoned to death. Right there. And they lay Stephen's cloaks at Saul's feet. Now I'm going to. I can't say that that's definitely Saul there, but I'm going to speculate and say that Saul probably was gearing up to bring his persecution and bring all his gang members, all his guys who were dragging people out, put them in prison, and having people stoned to death for Christ and for this message that he was there. And we can infer that, but we don't know if that's actually true, but we can say definitely in Acts 21-39 that that's where Paul came from. So the non-believing Greek-speaking Jews, they didn't have a chance unless there was provocation, unless they were instigating fights. So what do we see here? We see the power of the gospel hardening the heart. How about your proclamation of the gospel on a weekly basis? Is it softening hearts and hardening hearts? Or does it lack power because you're not really praying and seeking the Lord for the right words to say in your evangelistic endeavors? We need God's power of the gospel to come through our words in our proclamation of the gospel on a weekly basis. And we need to pray and ask God for that wisdom. Because the gospel does, it softens or it hardens. It does. Unbelievers have... a. a, a a varied amount of responses, but these are either response softly or hard. And so we need to understand that. So here in verse 11 through 14, what was the response of the opposition? They secretly instigate men. They provoke people. Start spreading this lie instead of what Stephen had been saying. And so what happens is Stephen's words are twisted in order to make them sound blasphemous against the prophet Moses and God. And restore up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So the false witnesses come upon Stephen. And they twist his words even more. And you can tell there is a mob being formed. And in verse 12 we read, And they stirred the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, and seized him, and brought him before the council. So we see even more how this is continually evolving into a bigger, bigger deal. Because now they're physically taking him. Because he won't stop speaking about Christ. And they bring him before the council. Now, I, I know that this is exactly the same thing we can read in Mark about Jesus. The same thing happened to him. We read in Mark fourteen fifty eight. We heard him say, and these are people, same Jewish people. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this... What happens in front of Christ? Their testimony does not agree. And the high priest, he stands up in the midst because he's tired of all the false witnesses because nothing can agree. And he says, have you no answer to make, Jesus? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But Jesus remained silent, and he made no answer. And again, the high priest, the high priest, he asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the cloud of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So we see even more that they set up false witnesses. In verse 13, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and law. The same thing's happening right now to Stephen. So what did... What did Jesus say about the temple and the law? Because we need to go back to what Christ said about the temple and the law. Well, Jesus said he would replace the temple. That he is the true temple. And his body and blood would pay the price for their sins. We read in John 2, 18-22, Jesus says this. The Jews are asking, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answers them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews say, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there you go. Jesus said, I am the true temple. But they didn't get it. They were still thinking pregio. They were still thinking building. They were still thinking slabs of marble and concrete. He was saying, I'm the true temple. And my body will pay for your sins. My blood will. What does Jesus say about the law? Well, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. In Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, we go back to Exodus, when God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the law to Moses. And then He gave some ceremonial laws on top of that. But God knew that by giving the law, it wasn't so that, Hey, I gave them a law because I knew they couldn't fulfill it. He gave them some stipulations to give them some order here on earth, but knowing full well they would never ever be able to obey it completely because all of it pointed to Jesus. So when Jesus says, if you harbor lustful thoughts in your heart and your mind, you've already committed adultery. Fulfilling what one of the Ten Commandments says. So all that being is Jesus is saying... I want your heart and I'm going to fulfill all of these Ten Commandments perfectly because I'm going to provide the grace that you need that no slaughtered animal can ever provide for you for eternity. So it was only given to man because God knew that man has always tried to earn God's favor through wisdom or wealth and obedience. But in the end, Jesus would be the only answer for our most fundamental problem, which is sin. You know, the temple of the law uh, would find their only God-intended place in Jesus. But I believe that not in religious duty or i.e. self-righteousness. You know, what we can all think about tons of forms of self-righteousness in our own lives and hearts. If you think that you aren't a self-righteous person, just ask the Lord to reveal how self-righteous you are and you'll be amazed. I think there's so many things, the things that came to mind this week that I saw... Not only in our family life, but in other ways in our ministry that we we saw in other people, but mostly in our own hearts, is maybe you're self righteous about how your children behave. You're, you're so self. You want them to behave a certain way, uh, a certain form. You want them to do things uh, this way on this timetable because if not, how will people view you as a parent? It's self righteousness. Maybe it's scheduling self righteousness. 
where you have a schedule to maintain. And if something gets interrupted at all, oh my gosh, you have disappointed God in some sort of way. It's schedule self-righteousness, you know? Or maybe it's a quantity of work. If you don't produce this much every day, what will people think about you that you're lazy? Instead of finding your identity in Jesus, you've put everything on you and what you can do. And it's self-righteousness. We could go on and on about self-righteousness and what this means, but it's what God wants to do in our hearts is He wants us to find our identity in Jesus first and foremost and in the gospel and what Jesus came to do, which is fulfill the law and destroy the temple so that He would be that true temple for us. And we would be what? The living stones built upon the cornerstone who is Christ. So... Is there a reason to follow the example of Stephen? What we see in verse 14 and 15. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there we see again, the big problem was Stephen's message of the gospel is going to change our religion. We're not going to be as religious and well thought of by outsiders if our temple's gone and our customs are changed. By Christ. And we can see that even in Christian churches, I believe. Christian churches where they're so geared on programs and doing it this way. And you got to have a building. you got to have chairs. And they got to line up like this. And I'm not against chairs and I'm not against buildings. But you cannot find your worth as a body of believers in what you look like. And how many programs you have. How many things you are doing. Or else you're so busy about the things of God, you forget who you're worshiping, you know? And so we see here at verse 15, And gazing at him, they're all looking at him. All who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, uh, let's go rewind and recap. Stephen, he's talking about Christ. Many signs and wonders be done. They say, look, I don't know about that. And they start talking to him privately and debating with him. They can't handle Stephen because he's too good. He's a gifted orator. So they start spreading lies. And then tons of people surround Stephen. And he's still that good because nothing makes sense. Because then he starts pouring it out. Now that, how does that work together if you're saying this and you're saying this? I didn't say that. Well, they get confused and they... Drag him physically to the council because they can't get him to shut up. Why? Because the gospel has taken root in his heart and his life and he has too much joy. And the gospel is logically making sense to the Old Testament law. Except their hard hearts can't believe it. So what do we see? His face was like the face of an angel. What is, do you really think that his face was just shining all and they just couldn't see, you know, Stephen... I believe that this is what this means. Is that the favor of God rested on Stephen just like it rested on Moses. You know, when Moses received the law of God when he descended from the mount, his face was so bright. His hair color changed because he had been in the presence of God. And I think it, we can put it into terms that we can understand like this. Moses received the law of God and his ministry. And he had been in the presence of God continually. And I believe the favor of God rested on Stephen because Stephen interpreted God's law correctly through Jesus Christ. And the gospel was going to make its transition from 
Aramaic-speaking Jews to Greek-speaking Jews, and it was going to get it was going to spread from there on. So all who viewed him saw his face as an angel. It was a striking feature because he was a man who appeared close to the Savior Jesus Christ and was consumed with the person and message of Christ. So as Chan Kilgore says again, the, the message of the gospel either hardens the heart or it softens it. it. softens it. So I believe Stephen gives us reason to follow his example. He's full of grace and power in his ministry. And he possessed irresistible wisdom, winsome words. He was a great orator. But all these things were preparing Stephen to be the eventual martyr for the gospel. Now, as we see here in these verses, there's some reasons for us to, to, to be thankful for the gospel and for God. I think there are a couple of them are right here. Jesus is the true temple and he fulfilled the law perfectly. People who are full of faith and power rest in the message of Christ. There can be no substitute for the message of Jesus and His perfect work on the cross for our sins and for our lives. We must declare the gospel winsomely and convincingly and completely with our words. But ultimately, all of us at one point or another will experience opposition to the message of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And that's what happened back when Stephen was declaring the gospel. It's going to happen to us. As we'll see next week, we'll hear about how he winsomely declared the gospel even in more depth, in more detail. I mean, 53 verses and it's a complete uh, winsome message that he put together on the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the history of the Old Testament. But let's take these reasons and apply these things to our own hearts and lives because we see that Jesus is whom we need to find our identity with, not in what we're doing. And we need to let Jesus transform our self-righteousness, our own traditions or our own legalisms that we have in our lives. So become more conformed to the image of Jesus. And so our faces not necessarily shine like angels, if that's what God's will is, then great. But more importantly that... Our lives reflect Christ and we have the aroma of Jesus on our lips. So let's do that.